How does it feel to have your student loans forgiven? How does it feel to watch someone else's forgiveness? From South Dakota Public Broadcasting, it's Monday, September 11th, and this is In the Moment. Coming up this hour, we welcome financial therapist Rick Kaler to the program. We'll talk about the emotions of loan forgiveness for those receiving and for those who didn't take out loans to avoid debt. Silence will never keep us safe. That's the idea behind a documentary that shares a story of hope and survival. We'll talk suicide prevention and a girl who survived to reclaim her life and inspire others. Plus, CJ Keene reports on accessibility for wild places, and we celebrate 90 years of the Black Hills Symphony Orchestra. Those stories are coming later in the hour. We're broadcasting live today from SDPB's Kirby Family Studio in Sioux Falls. I'm Lori Walsh. You're in the moment. News is first. The South Dakota Republican Party hosted the Monumental Leaders Rally in Rapid City this weekend. The keynote speaker was former President Donald Trump. He's also a 2024 Republican presidential candidate. SDPB's Lee Strubinger was there, and he joins me now with a recap. Lee, welcome. Thanks for being here. Yeah, good to be here, Laurie. So you were in attendance at the South Dakota Monumental Leaders Rally this weekend. You covered that event for SDPB. Help us understand how the event was promoted. Yeah, so initially this was promoted as like a state party fundraiser. Um, And those familiar with kind of the Lincoln Day dinner format, which are Mm -hmm. some of the county party fundraisers that can feature various elected officials, depending on who's available. Um, It was kind of like that, but initially billed as more of like a statewide Lincoln Day dinner uh, slash party fundraiser in July. Um, But that was postponed to accommodate a special guest speaker. Uh, You know, turns out that was former President Donald Trump, and he appeared um, last Friday. All right. So uh, when the event was underway, was it still, you know, true to that original promise? Did it deliver on its promise for for attendees, or did it shift to a, a different focus once President Trump, former president, arrived? Yeah, so there were kind of two, I guess, big uh, speaking events. Kind of the first half did feature a lot of the uh, state constitutional officers. Um, many of those folks spoke early on around 5 p.m. from Attorney General Marty Jackley to Auditor Rich Satgast, PUC Commissioner Christy Feagan, School and Public Lands Commissioner Brock Greenfield. A lot of those folks, they spoke early on. Um, we also heard from State Senator and GOP Party Chair John Wick, and uh, he really issued a call to attendees to get involved in that. The only way for the party to win and to get Trump back in the White House was to get the grassroots involved. We are much stronger when we stand together than when we stand apart. This is not a new challenge. We've faced big tests before. We have proved ourselves as a nation that we can come together and win. So that was part of the first half of the of the of the event. And then there was about an hour long break where there was like some music playing and people were hanging out. And then, um, you know, the second half uh, started, you know, so what was initially billed as that party fundraiser um, quickly in the second half turned into a not so veiled attempt to plant in the former president Donald Trump's mind of Christy Noem as a potential vice president pick. All right. So we see um, members of the crowd holding Trump Noem 2024 signs. 
Tell me about that. What can you, what have you been able to suss out? Yeah. So those started appearing during, uh, Christy Nome's speech. Um, they started circulating uh, behind the stage where Nome was speaking. Um, it's kind of unclear who was circulating those, uh, but I could see them getting passed along the bleachers behind the podium, which is, you know, the direction the cameras were pointed. Uh, but they were not being passed along to the general audience sort of uh, on the sides that I could really tell. Uh, also, that same sign flashed very briefly on the big screen inside the ice arena in Rapid City when Trump walked out on stage and uh, Trump and Noam embraced shortly after she issued her uh, full and complete endorsement um, for Trump for the uh, presidential nomination. I do know that the governor's spokesperson, Ian Fury, took a volunteer day that day and that he was running some PowerPoint slides. When I asked if he was running the slide that popped up the gnome, the Trump gnome 2024 image, he said, nope. Um, and my follow-ups as to who did it went unanswered. All right. So also of note, Senator Thune, Senator Rounds, they have already endorsed Tim Scott for president. Governor Nome, as you mentioned, full endorsement for Donald Trump. Were the senators doing around uh, rounds at the rally? Did they have any kind of presence there? Uh, they nor Representative Do uh, Johnson were in attendance or spoke, uh, though Governor Nome did not mention anyone by name in her speech. The absence of some Republicans, you know, really rankled the sitting governor, and she criticized party members who were not in attendance. Let me be clear. There are many who choose not to be in the arena, many who take the easy path, who criticize, who don't show up for our party, our country, or our constitutional rights. They don't show up for you when it really matters. They didn't even show up here tonight to welcome a former president of the United States to South Dakota. A president who cared enough to come and support our state Republican Party and our great chairman, John Wick. The crowd, in the, the crowd in attendance, at least, was clearly not a fan of the congressional delegation. Even earlier in the night, they booed uh, well before her speech, Noam's speech, uh, Thune, Rounds, and Johnson when their images appeared uh, on the big screen during a video that was celebrating Republicans like uh, Governor Bill Janklow and Senator uh, Jim Abner. Uh, it, it is worth noting that despite uh, the opposition that was clearly visible in the arena that night to the congressional delegation, uh, they all each handily won their their last uh, elections. All right. SDPB's Lee Strubinger was at the uh, Monumental Leaders Rally over the weekend in Rapid City and joins us with this update from SDPB's Surgical Hospital Studio in our Rapid City spaces. Lee, thanks so much. We appreciate the update. Yeah, you bet, Lori. You're listening to In the Moment on South Dakota Public Broadcasting. I'm Lori Walsh. Emma Benoit is a Louisiana high school student who attempted to die by suicide. She survived. Now, Benoit seeks to save lives through Hope Squad. That is a school-based suicide prevention program she brought to her home state. To other states, including South Dakota, Emma is seeking to prevent suicides by telling her story. The film documentary My Ascension shares her journey and that film will screen tomorrow at the Sioux Falls State Theater and next Monday on SDPB TV. 
Janet Kittims is CEO of the Helpline Center, which is bringing the film and Emma's story to South Dakota. And she has stopped by our SDPB's Kirby Family Studio in Sioux Falls for an update. Janet, welcome back. Thanks for being here. Absolutely. Happy to be here. This is a very compelling documentary. The first 10 minutes are tough stuff. So if you go to the State Theater, if you're watching it on TV, Mm -hmm. prepare yourself for that. And I would recommend sticking with it because the information throughout the entire um, documentary is is really very revealing and useful. Tell me why you wanted to bring this to South Dakota. You know, I think Emma has a very powerful story to share with people. And it's really a message of hope and a message of healing that she wants to convey to people. And that's what we want to convey to people across South Dakota, that there is help and there's hope for people when they have thoughts of suicide. And I think that message um, resonates well um, for everyone across the, the state. So we're not only excited to bring the screening uh, to Sioux Falls, but we're also excited to bring her in person in next month in October. Okay. So um, her story, well, first let's go over some of the statistics sure. from, from the film itself. If you think this isn't a problem, um, in the United States, 20 young people die by suicide mm-hmm. every day. And she points out in the film, that's like the entire student body of nine high schools every year. Mm-hmm. So to put into context how drastic this problem is for young people. Do those kind of numbers track with what you're seeing in South Dakota for the number of people who call 988 and the number of crises that you feel, the partnerships that you have through the Helpline Center? Um, Is this a significant problem in the state of South Dakota? Yes, and I think it's been somewhat of a hidden problem in the state of South Dakota. People have been a little bit reluctant to talk about it. But certainly on 988, that's what we hear from um, adolescents, teens, young adults. And sometimes that's through a phone call, and sometimes that's through text or chat, since we have all three uh, channels available for for folks. And um, that's really kind of what we've seen over the past year with the launch of 988 is more young people reaching out for help or just to talk about what's going on in their lives. They might not be quite at that moment in crisis, but they're struggling. There's tough things happening in their lives and they're just, they're reaching out to tell us about it. Yeah. And as you mentioned, Emma herself is coming here on October 24th for a presentation. Some of the things that she said in this documentary that resonated with me and that I write down, wrote down was that she thought she was doing what was best Mm -hmm. for everyone around her. I think that can a lot of people can relate to that just from not wanting to burden other people with how you're feeling today. She thought, if I'm not here anymore, if there's no more Emma, everyone will have few, fewer things to worry about. They won't have to, you know, this is a burden. I'm sure. a burden. Yeah, we hear that from so many folks that have made that attempt on, on their lives and they survive. Just that the reasoning that they were thinking at that moment in time was that, you know, it would everybody's life would be better without them, when in fact that is not true at all. Um, the pain that family and friends feel when somebody dies by suicide is immense and um, longstanding. And so it's, it's difficult, I think, for that person who's going through crisis to kind of recognize that and understand um, that they are not a burden to these individuals that love them. The individuals who love them want to help them and want to see them succeed yeah and then there's this moment um, immediately afterwards uh, where she is thinking what have I just done and when she wakes up in the hospital she has a moment she I thought I would had been attacked I thought I'd been beaten up and then the awareness came that this was something that she remembers doing and the the shame 
that she felt over her actions. This is all, I mean, this is disordered thinking. This is not a logical, if you think I'm trying to talk about how logical this is, I'm not. <laughs> right. <laughs> this, yeah. is, this is not healthy thinking. These are red flags to mm -hmm. reach out and talk to somebody um, with. Why? What do you think it takes for someone like Emma to go from all the things that she has gone through to be in a place where she says, I think my suffering might help other people. That seems like an, an enormous step for her to take. Mm -hmm. I think it was quite a journey for her of healing and recognizing that the pain that she went through, that she could turn that into something positive to help other people. And so her work, as she talks about it in the film with the hope squads in the high schools, I think is a part of how she's channeling that. You know, in the Helpline Center, um, we're very excited because we are going to be working with several high schools this fall to launch Hope Squads across the state of South Dakota. And so I think that message of those peer helpers is such a strong message that um, your peers are here to help you. Of course, 988 and the Helpline Center is here 24-7, but there are people right around you who care about you and want to talk to you and want to help you with this. Yeah, how important is peer support and pair that with this idea that we are still struggling with socially which is if we talk about it is it going to plant the ideas in somebody's mind I mean I could hear a parent who's concerned they send their kid to school and all mm -hmm. of a sudden they're you know they're hanging out with the hope squad and they're like well gee that wasn't something that was part of their life before that came does the silence uh, uh, or the stigma really act as any kind of protective service or we've completely laid that to rest you know, it's not completely laid to rest, unfortunately. We still hear comments like that, that um, people still have some misperceptions and misbeliefs that if people talk about suicide, that it will plant the seed. And, and in no way does it do that. What it does is it opens up the opportunity for that person to share their feelings and their thoughts and the pain that they're experiencing. And I think that's really what we've seen on, on 988 is when people call us, there's just so much um, pain that's happening out there across our state. And sometimes it just is so helpful to share that pain with others and to unburden yourself with that, those um, struggles that we're feeling inside. So um, I think we've come a long way with the stigma, but we still have a ways to go. How do you train people to be the person on the other line in a way that will help all of us who are talking to the, our loved ones when they're, when they're suffering, when they're in pain? Yeah, you know, I think the most important characteristic is that um, sense of compassion and the sense of caring um, that our counselors provide to folks who call 988. They have to intrinsically have that. And then what we do is we work with them on specific training on, you know, whether that's um, kind of assessments that we do over the phone to ensure that person is safe. We make sure that we go through a safety plan with everybody and we establish those uh, connections or referrals to resources in their local area across the the state. So um, fundamentally, that's probably our biggest difference is we just have a culture of caring, support, and compassion that we give to people. And we're there to listen. And oftentimes, I think people feel unheard in their life. They just don't have people that are hearing them. Mm. All right. So what do you want people to know about the Hope Squads and the schools they're coming to and some of the work that um, your, your organization is doing in the fall? 
Sure, absolutely. So we are currently reaching out and partnering with high schools that might be interested in bringing a Hope Squad, which is kind of a, a peer-based program, to their, their high school or their middle school. Um, these have been uh, demonstrated through uh, research and evidence that they're quite effective in helping prevent suicides and helping students and young people reach out for help. So if a school is interested, they just simply have to reach out to the Helpline Center, and you can do that by calling 988. All right. Um, this film... The premiere or the screening is tomorrow at the Sioux Falls State Theater. And next Monday, you can tune in to SDPB TV as well. We're going to put links up um, at 7 p.m. local time. I'm sorry. Nope. 7 p.m. Central Time at the Sioux Falls State Theater tomorrow. And then SDPB TV Monday, September 18th, 8 p.m. Central, 7 Mountain. You are listening to In the Moment on South Dakota Public Broadcasting. I'm Lori Walsh. Some Americans with student loan debt have seen their total debt amount drop, in some cases to zero. And that comes with a variety of emotions, excitement, relief, joy. But that also causes a variety of emotions in other Americans. Those who paid off their debt or never took out any in the first place might be feeling jealousy unfairness, maybe a little bitterness. So let's talk about where the financial complexities of debt forgiveness overlap with emotional complexities. Rapid City Wealth Advisor Rick Kaler is president of the Kaler Financial Group, and he is with me on the phone to talk about what you might feel when someone else gets a financial boost that you didn't. Rick Kaler, welcome back. Thanks for being here. Good to be here, Lori. You kind of nailed it. It's pretty complex. It is indeed. <laughs> but we know that you are all, so you, you have prepped us to, uh, first of all, realize how emotional this can be. So before you jump into whether this is good policy or not, let's talk about how it feels. And we are responding emotionally to this in a variety of ways. Where do you want to begin kind of unpacking the emotions of student loan forgiveness? Well, there are a number of emotions that can be based on a, a lot of person's beliefs, their money scripts, how they view money, their relationship with money. Uh, and the first one that comes to mind is happiness mm -hmm. for the other people that are getting this. You know, actually uh, some joy, at seeing it, that that's a real positive step for them in um, eliminating a financial burden, um, improving their lives, et cetera. So it, sometimes when I uh, think about things like this, I'm, I immediately go to the negative. Yeah, sure. <laughs> I don't know if anybody else does. <laughs> but um, happiness, a person can generally, uh, genuinely feel really uh, happy. And also... Um, a state, they can also feel some generosity, and generosity from the point that they really support the policies, or, gee, I'm glad my tax dollars went for this, um, while others can feel resentment over it that my tax dollars went for this. Um, a person could also uh, feel some real empathy for the other person, empathy in the way that I'm sorry or sad that they had to actually go into debt to um, fund their uh, education. 
and um, feeling, um, you know, some compassion of what this must mean to the other uh, person and um, just recognizing how much relief that it can give them. Um, and, and along with that, a person could feel sympathy that, man, I, I'm i sorry that they had to incur the debt in the first place. So uh, those are a number of uh, emotions that we might not first come to mind that people can, can feel over this. And also, before we get to the difficult emotions, um, a person could feel just indifference. You know, not not have a strong emotion. Some people listening may be in that category. Like, oh, okay, I I don't feel happy. I don't feel sad. I don't I don't. Nothing just really comes up, and that doesn't mean the person is checked out. That just means it's not triggering anything with them. Yeah. So if it does trigger something for you strongly, pay attention to that. Exactly. And one thing that can come up is uh, a sense of insecurity that, wow, I I didn't go to school because I would have to go in debt, or I didn't go to the school I wanted because of that. And then feeling some uh, some sadness, you know, questioning the choices that they made and um, uh, the circumstances and the outcome. So just a, a general feeling of insecure. Mm. And then we can get to the ones that uh, can come to mind first for some, which is resentment, you know, feeling anger, feeling uh, uh, this is not fair. Um, I didn't accumulate debt. I worked hard. I worked my way through college or I saved um, or I got scholarships, whatever it is. And um, these these other folks get off, and, and uh, they can make up a story that they're getting a free pass. And, of course, this would be the person that obviously didn't get the uh, any uh, debt reduction on their student loans that might have had some. And jealousy mm-hmm. uh, can, can come in saying, well, look at, I'm struggling, and I'm not much more different than they are. They got it because of this and that technicality. So quite an opposite reaction from being uh, happy and and joyful. And then there's the person that could tick the box for all the above. (laughs) (laughs) I was going to, I want to add one. I want to add one for your consideration, which is guilt. Maybe if your story tells you that you shouldn't have been forgiven, that you were working, you know, you're in the middle of working hard to pay it off. And then all of a sudden it's gone and you have this story that now you that's something been taken away from you, which was the opportunity to finally, you know, say I paid for that education. I wrote my last check and the the debt has been satisfied. Like I want that, you know, yes. I want that piece. Of yeah. I remember when I paid off my student debt, it was like, your debt has been satisfied. And I was like, oh, I'm gonna frame that. You know, I did it. And now if you've forgiven it, maybe somebody feels guilty or a sense that an opportunity to feel that mastery was removed from them. I don't know. I, it's no, worth it's worth adding to a long list of possible emotions, yeah. Totally worth worth adding. Um, you see that with uh, people that often have uh, money. 
um, you can see that especially with uh, celebrities, yeah. is just the sense of guilt that they have money. We're kind of, we're kind of stepping outside of the, the debt issue, but guilt and money um, go mm-hmm. hand in hand. And just uh, also imposter syndrome goes with that too. But you're exactly right. Just guilt that why me and not them? I don't deserve this. Yeah. This it's the other side of this isn't fair. Let's pull on the thread of insecurity a little bit of that sense that oh I made choices. Maybe that choice was that I didn't go to school or I didn't go to the school where I would have incurred more debt even though I wanted to. Or I worked really hard and I made a lot of sacrifices that I could have been doing other things with that money, like investing it for my future, but I was really paying off that debt. And now you're feeling insecure about your choices and your, and your place. So once you identify that that's the emotion, what's, what's the next step? Um, it's really <clears throat> identifying it and feeling it are two different things. Mm. So this is my least it, favorite part, uh, listener. My least favorite part is the part where you have to actually feel it. <laughs> <laughs> like, I don't mind I, identifying it. I don't mind naming it. That feels good. And then you have to feel it. And then you have to feel I it. I have talked about this before <laughs> when I, I discovered uh-huh. that talking about feelings isn't feeling them. And yeah. I can talk about them very easily. And I, and I said, I wish somebody had told me that 25 years ago. <laughs> and I was cleaning out a bookshelf. And I grabbed this book, uh, uh, may have been by Melody Beatty, yeah. and I had highlighted a bunch of stuff. And the page fell open to a highlighted sentence that said, talking about feelings is not the same as feeling them. Uh, <laughs> uh, okay. It took me 25 years to have, <laughs> for that to sink in. So, yes, um, to, to feel that, and it might be helpful to, do, uh, to write, what are the money scripts? Mm-hmm. that are around that feeling of insecurity, that I made a wrong choice or, um, you know, what's under that. I, I'm going to guess with the insecurity there can come some, there could come some guilt, and guilt is I did something wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, well, sometimes there's no way to fix that or or to undo time. It's just the the process, the grief, you know, also with that insecurity comes grief in a decision that wasn't made, perhaps. And with the grief is is the sadness. Maybe there's some anger. Maybe there's some fear. Um, There's some regret. So uh, that's part of what feeling insecurity is is really getting to those underlying emotions that are there, and the other one that there could be some uh, uh, a feeling and tied into that would be shame, and shame is systemic. Shame is not guilt. Guilt is yes, I did something wrong, but it, the shame goes beyond that to almost say I am wrong. Mm-hmm. Uh, see, this is more evidence that I'm a failure and that I always make bad financial decisions. And so that goes much deeper to, uh, to get at. Uh, and sometimes there, it can be more shame that I made that decision. Well, if you unpack why, uh, it may have been the absolute best decision to have made. Mm-hmm. 
given all the circumstances that a person had going on in their life. Mm-hmm. So really acknowledging and feeling those feelings. And uh, a person might uh, need some help in uh, unpacking that too. But um, I think they, uh, you can go a long way just mm-hmm. to, to doing the money scripts, seeing what the money scripts are, and really unpacking all the complexity of feelings that goes with that. What does it mean to feel sad for other people? Like when we talked about, you know, you might feel empathy and you might just feel sad for the people who were carrying this amount of debt, um, even if you didn't have it. What does it mean to, what, I'm trying to think of what kind of money scripts we tell ourselves or what kind of thoughts we're having that we shouldn't care about those people. And all of a sudden you're like, oh, I feel, I feel really bad that that's what people felt that they had to do. Well, then what do you do with that emotion? Yeah, that's important to kind of unpack. Is this about me or is this about them? Because sometimes our feeling sad for someone can really be more of a reflection of us feeling sad for ourselves. Or, again, kind of touching on the insecurity, sad that um, we didn't make that. Or uh, 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 clinging on to some sadness within us that's that's unfinished business, sadness that we haven't felt. And sometimes um, we can tap into that when we see the... um, Uh, trials or tribulations of another person Uh, because the fact that we may feel uh, um, uh, sadness for um, a lost opportunity or something like that doesn't mean that other person does either. They may feel totally different. I talked to somebody who had had a substantial amount of money um, forgiven and I asked them how it made them feel and they said uh, grateful and inspired to help other people. And I thought that was a really interesting Mm. emotional response to say not only did they just feel this huge weight lifted off of them, but then they felt an immediate responsibility to say, well, what can we do for others? That could be positive. And it could also be like, you know, that guilt is, is sneaking in. Like, do you feel a responsibility to do something beyond this? So if you've received some kind of loan forgiveness, um, and you feel grateful and you feel relief, what's next for you? A wonderful distinction between wanting to do something for others and am I feeling that out of generosity or am I feeling that out of guilt? Mm. Do, you, do you have a therapist degree of any type? No, no. I just I just interview Rick Kaler periodically for several years. And if that generosity is heartfelt, it's kind of like yeah, doing yeah. something, uh, uh, giving to another person. Do I feel like that I'm giving out of obligation or out of heart? When it's out of obligation, that's something we need to take a look at. So if it's out of generosity, of course, the next step, a person will figure out what's the next step, what can I do, or can I influence policy, or can I pay it forward with somebody else, however that would manifest for that person. Yeah. But if it's um, feeling that I need to, to give back out of guilt, well, that can get to the money script of I don't deserve money, and I don't deserve. I'm happy I got this, but, 
man, I feel so guilty because yeah. of it. Therefore, I need to pay back this debt of guilt to someone, mm. not out of generosity, I'm giving out of guilt. And quite frankly, going back to those that have money and what we talked about, a lot of giving is out of guilt and not generosity. Mm-hmm. So right. that there's a whole bunch of money scripts there to unpack. I love it when we think we're just talking about policy and it turns out we're talking about humanity and you know, we don't do a lot of jubilee anymore in our society like they did. No, we sure don't. <laughs> in biblical times. Um, but then there are those stories that maybe we also brought from our childhood, too. So, all right. Well, Rick Kaler, you've given us a lot to think about, as always. And uh, we'll put some links up on our website to Rick's website and to many of his financial therapy books. The most recent one is called Coupleship. And uh, Rick, thanks so much for being here. Okay, thank you very much, Lori. Take care. Let's take a moment now for South Dakota history. On this day in 2000, the Homestake Mine announced it would cease gold mining operations at the end of 2001. In 125 years of mining in Leed, Homestake produced more than 40 million ounces of gold. Lead Historic Preservation calls the Homestake Mine the richest 100 square miles on Earth. The original strike that eventually became Homestake Mine was made in 1876 at Bobtail Gulch near Central City. Brothers Fred and Moses Manuel, along with Hank Harney and Alexander Ng, sold their claim to George Hurst a year later. He renamed it Homestake. Now, at first, miners found gold on the surface and followed those initial mineral veins underground. The work was done by hand, even though it was clear that miners would have to follow the veins much deeper into the hillside. Small tunnels were created to get as much gold as possible. Through the years, miners were equipped with candlesticks, mules, and hammers. And later, they would use state-of-the-art pneumatic and hydraulic equipment for both tunneling and the massive open cut. As the Hearst family prospered from the homestake, George's wife, Phoebe, created several community-minded projects in Lead. The most notable was the Homestake Opera House. It included a grand performance hall and several recreational spaces. It even had a free kindergarten and library. The Opera House burned in the early 1980s, but it's being rebuilt to much of its former glory, and the mine has an afterlife as a scientific research center. But it was on this day in 2000 when it was announced that Homestake Mining would shut down after 125 years of operations. Production assistance for This Week in South Dakota History comes from Brad Tennant. Dr. Tennant is a writer and professor of history at Dakota Wesleyan University. We've got more in the moment after the break on listener-supported SDPB Radio. You're listening to In the Moment on South Dakota Public Broadcasting. I'm Lori Walsh. The public lands in the Black Hills National Forest belong to us all, regardless of age or background. The Forest Services Concessionaire has teamed up with a range of disability groups to make sure everyone has a chance to enjoy a bit of wilderness. SDPB's C.J. Keene has more. It's a beautiful day at Horse Thief Lake in the Black Hills National Forest. The fish are biting, it's finally not too hot, and the view of the hills over the water is picturesque. 
For more than 200 people, this is a special day called Experience the Forest. The Forest Service and Forest Recreation Management organized the event to give people with disabilities a chance to enjoy the outdoors. Jody Massey and a friend of hers quickly become the center of attention. A red-sided garter snake. And the reason why I call him Noodle is because he's long and skinny like a piece of spaghetti. <laughs> Massey is a forest wildlife technician and the resident reptile whisperer. So all the critters that you see here on our table are all species that you can find here in South Dakota. Nice. Yeah? Noodle here, he loves to eat earthworms and pieces of meat. And it, that's his favorite food. Noodle makes friends with his guests, though some are less excited than others at the invitation. Massey has bits of snake skin and invites the crowd to feel for themselves. This event gives people living with a wide range of intellectual and physical disabilities a chance to meaningfully experience nature. For some, touching and feeling can go a long way. Annie Stoff says she's enjoying the collection of furs, antlers, and horns on display. She runs her fingers through the matted fur of a buffalo hide. And the part that I like about it is that they're let, letting me touch it because I can't see. I'm legally blind and in a wheelchair. Stoff says she loves getting outdoors but there's a pause as she considers how many opportunities like this she gets. Not very often, but I'm really gonna enjoy, the, enjoy this. Access is an undeniable challenge out here, but for one day in the woods, the mood is overwhelmingly positive for everyone, regardless of ability. At the lake, anglers are up to their gills in the trout. Oh, that's a nice one. Very nice. Thanks for telling me something was tugging on it. <laughs> Jeremiah, you're a natural. This is third one. Oh, wow. By the time the microphones turned off, anglers had hauled in five fish. This Experience the Forest event began 16 years ago and happened yearly until the pandemic. Everyone gets something unique from the day, especially Kate Campbell. He's been a participant in the past and is now working his first summer as a seasonal ranger. When it came up for this year and I could give back to people who've done it for me, I had to take my opportunity. I didn't know how much actually went into putting this event on and there was a lot of contributing factors that come into this and it's nice to see that People with intellectual disabilities can get out and still have some of the fun. Campbell said in his first year helping to organize things, he's already feeling a sense of joy from creating this opportunity. That emotion is mirrored by Tiger Broad. She's operations manager with Forest Recreation Management and a longtime organizer of the event. It's amazing to watch the looks on the faces of all of our guests that don't get to spend a lot of time up in the forest. Gerbrot says while they accept donations to help offset costs, this is less about fundraising and more about creating a day's worth of joy. We have a donations board hanging up there. A lot of the local businesses contribute the meat for the food or the buns or um, money, quite frankly. It's reached the point where she says they're ready for more. We coordinate with the Forest Service. We have Mount Rushmore here represented. We have South Dakota Game Fish and Parks. We want to expand our reach to people. You know, if there's people that are in the setting, that this would be a wonderful day, way for them to spend a day, then please contact us. She encourages groups like adult daycare services, work service and assistance groups to contact Forest Recreation Management to learn how to get involved. For the foresters though, Introducing people to the hills is always a special day. 
Stephen Keegan is a forest landscape architect. He says regardless of who he's talking with, it's worthwhile to share the beauty of the forest. This is a great event for uh, all of us that work at. We get an opportunity to get away from our normal uh, work and all and do something different and, and help put smiles on people's faces. Those smiles were especially wide at the picnic area where food and a little bit of live music helped finish out a long day of exploring the wild. I'm an everywhere man, I'm an everywhere man, cross the desert bear man, I free the mountain air man, travel up to my chair man, I'm an everywhere. I'm SDPB's CJ Keen in Rapid City. In Reno, Chicago, Fargo, Minnesota, Buffalo, Toronto, and you can find and share that story on our website, sdpb.org slash news. Well, the Black Hills Symphony Orchestra is celebrating a musical milestone. They're turning 90 years old. That's 90 years of artistic exploration, growth, and community engagement. Kristen Hollenbeck is joining us now from SDPB's Black Hills Surgical Hospital Studio in Rapid City. She's director of the Black Hills Symphony Orchestra. Kristen Hollenbeck, welcome back. Thanks for being here. Thank you, Lori. I'm really happy to be here today. And just to correct, I'm the executive director. We have an artistic director and conductor. That's Bruce Knowles. And I wouldn't want to take credit for that because that is not my area of expertise. All right, the executive director. So you're looking at what part of the orchestra. Help us understand um, how you're approaching 90 years from an executive director standpoint. Well, from my perspective, what we want to continue to do is what we have always done, which is to be the Black Hill, the orchestra for the Black Hills, playing music and supporting uh, music education in our community, and that's what we intend to continue to do. And my job is really to make that happen behind the scenes. I don't play an instrument. I don't conduct the orchestra. I do all the things that make it so that the music can happen. All right. So it did say executive director right in front of me. I just misspoke. So <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> that happens sometimes to me. Tell me a little bit about some of the activities or um, the events that are going on this season. Well, we're really excited. We have a, a really dynamic uh, season coming up for our 90th. We're starting out with a, a concert we're calling Old World, New World. And that is going to feature uh, classical guitarist Masakazu Ito. He is from uh, Colorado. He teaches at the School of Mines in Colorado and is their orchestra conductor. And he is a fabulous guitarist. He will be playing the concerto de Aranjuez. And I am sure, apologies to Spanish speakers, I did a terrible job with that. <laughs> <laughs> but um, that is a wonderful con uh, concerto guitar. It's very, very famous. People will recognize yeah. it. It starts out with the dun, 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 dun. So people will recognize it. And, that, and then we're rounding that concert out with the Ninth Symphony for the 90 years of Dvorak, which is the New World Symphony. That's the, the colloquial, colloquial title of it. Sure. So we're doing that. All right. So let's talk a little bit about what an orchestra means to a community. How does it fit in um, you know, to the overall arts offerings, to the cultural landscape? How do you view that? Well, I feel like we're a linchpin of that um, uh, arts organization, arts community. We are. We have been around a long time. We are the beneficiaries and the and the 
growers of the wonderful arts um, and music performance in our public schools here in Rapid City. We have wonderful high school orchestras. We have an amazing strings program that starts in the fourth grade. Um, kids with, from public school are learning, and those are our musicians also who are teaching in the public schools, teaching lessons privately. Because we're a community orchestra, our members are here in our community. A lot of them own businesses and work in local businesses. So we have uh, deep ties to the community. Our audience comes because they love us, because they know us, their kids, their family, their parents. They're in the orchestra. So that we are very closely tied, and we collaborate a lot with other arts organizations in Rapid City. With the, We provide in, um, musicians for pit orchestras for the Black Hills Playhouse and Black Hills Community Theater. We have done live performances of the Nutcracker with Black Hills Dance and different mm -hmm. dance companies. So we are, we are just intertwined with the arts in our community. So when people are so a much part of the community, you mentioned they might be, you know, an educator, they might be a business owner. What's the rehearsal like then? That has to be sort of a community gathering in and of itself. It is, and that is one of the things that we expect of our of our group is that it is a it is a gathering of people, like-minded people. That's how we started. Our original group of string players wanted to be able to join together to play larger pieces of music, and that was in 1933. And now, um, 90 years later, we're an 80 to 90 piece orchestra, depending on the on the requirements of the piece, and we are still joining musicians together. We have people in our orchestra that are in high school that are um, high school string players, and we have. We have retirees and people that are in their 80s that are still playing in the orchestra. And because we are a community group, we, we are open to all the various walks of life. And to, you must have to have then that, that, um, that pipeline. How important yes. is the elementary program, the middle school program, the high school program to say not only are we trying to create you know, well-rounded people and, you know, dealing with that we know often studying classical music can help brain development, but also that at least some of those students are going to end up being in the orchestra in, in the future. Some of them are going to want to stick with it as adults, and, and you need a place for them to play then as adults. How important is that uh, fourth grade and up pipeline to the longevity of the next 90 years? Oh my gosh, it is it is absolutely critical. And we wholeheartedly support music in our public schools because of that. We have players who who played in our high school orchestras. I mean, Bruce Knowles went to high school here in Rapid City and he is now our conductor, mm -hmm. our um our concertmaster, Amanda Swartz was a high school orchestra player, and she won the Young Artist Competition when she was in high school yeah. and went off and studied um, violin and returned to the community as an adult, and she is now um, our concertmaster. And there are many, many stories like that in our orchestra of people who have started out you know, in the public schools playing an instrument. And I mean, I know you have a child who is a musician, and I have mm -hmm. two. Um, and 
that's a lifelong learning. It, it gives you skills that you just can't measure beyond the actual ability to read music and make beautiful sounds with an instrument. When my daughter was playing cello in high school and we were out in Rapid City and she's walking down Main Street um, with that cello on her back, we got stopped three times by people who said, oh, I was in the orchestra. <laughs> and we were like, what is up with Rapid City? Like people are stopping <laughs> us and telling us about their random orchestra experience in high school. But it felt like at that time, like a community who was welcoming her as a musician and then also saying, hey, yeah, us too. And you'll never forget that you played the cello. And I thought that was a beautiful <laughs> thing about Rapid City that I was totally unexpected when it happened to us. So, well, congratulations. It's very much like that, yes. Yeah. Congratulations on 90 years. When is the, the opener? The opener is October 21st, and tickets are on sale now. You can, our home is the Performing Arts Center, the historic theater within there, and our box office is there at the Performing Arts Center. They're open from noon to 5, Monday through Friday. All right. Kirsten Hollenbeck, thank you so much for being here with us. We really appreciate your time. Thanks, Lori. And that is our show for today. We hope that it served you on Tomorrow's In The Moment. We're going to check in on fall vaccine recommendations. We've got On Call with the Prairie Doc and a new frontline, Putin versus the press. It's all coming up. Oh, and Teacher Talk as well tomorrow. Definitely tune in from all of us at South Dakota Public Broadcasting. I'm Lori Walsh. Thanks for listening.